With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Seahawks fans, wherever you may be, welcome back for another edition of the Seahawks Playbook Podcast. Join your host, Bill Alpstead, and co-host, sports writer and football analyst, Keith Myers, as we talk Seahawks football. Fans, welcome back to another episode of the Seahawks Playbook Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Alfstead, sitting down with co-host Keith Myers. And we've reached that point in the offseason where we do not have any current news to offer you and current <laughs> subject matter to talk about. And um, so now we're going to switch over to history. We're going to give a Seahawks history lesson today for those of you who are interested uh, both of us have been around this team for as long as we can both remember, uh, albeit I've, I've got that, um, that little uh, stretch of extra time uh, before Keith was even around uh, to, um, to be a fan. And so um, we're going to talk about it. We're going to have a, good, a, a fun show. I don't know exactly where this thing is going to go, but we'll just talk about um, talk about it from our own perspectives and uh, it, it should be a lot of fun. So welcome in. Yeah. Um, it's a, uh, kind of be a, hopefully this is gonna be a fun show, but the, um, I was trying to like research stuff and just remind myself of certain things. And I'm like, God, there's just so much. There's so much. It's and just, it's so much. So I'm, I'm coming into this having looked at all of that and then not even really taking notes. So we'll see. <laughs> I um, I know. Because I'm, I'm just like there, there's so much. I'm like, let's just get in here and talk about what we want to get into. It, this is gonna be yeah. fun, um, because I mean, we're talking about Seahawks history, so how could it not be? Um, yeah. Want but I, I want to get your take on um, the formation of this team and what it was like the first season. 
Well, it was pretty cool, actually. So, you know, I'm just going to age myself right off the bat. And, um, <laughs> and I'm totally fine with that. I mean, look at me. I'm not trying to hide, hide my age. Um, I'm actually, you know, going for a competition to be Santa Claus this year. Really? That's, that's my goal. Um, just kidding. So back in 1975-ish or 74, the back end of 74, 75, I heard about the Seahawks um, and the NFL coming to Seattle. Uh, my dad made me aware because he was a football fan um, growing up. And um, while well, I was growing up as well, and I played football as much as I could possibly play when I was a young kid, just in the backyard, throwing the ball around with all my buddies and friends. We, I was lucky enough to have this huge flat backyard. And so all the neighborhood kids would come over and this is where we would have the, the, uh, the football competitions and, and we would all, you know, switch positions and play and, had a great time. But so anyway, my dad was a Vikings fan um, early on in, in the process, Fran Tarkington, all that kind of stuff. And Carl Eller, purple people eaters, you know, so that was part of my growing up. I always wanted to be Fran Tarkington because I was a lefty. So I'd go out in the back and I'd, you know, <laughs> practice being a lefty and Fran Tarkington scramble around and all that kind of stuff. So found out we were going to have uh, a team and for Christmas, and this was 1974, just before 76, I think my mom got the family and my dad specifically uh, season tickets for Christmas. And, um, and, and I believe that the value on those tickets, face value on those tickets, uh, and we were in the seventh row, um, was $15, $15 piece um, to go to go watch a game. And we were in section, I'm going to try to remember now, section 107, row, section 103, row seven, seats one, two, and three. And, um, and we held those seats from 1976 until 1989. And so it was a privilege to, to go to uh, quite a few games uh, in person, uh, almost the entire kingdom, you know, run, not, not, not the whole thing, but. Uh, you know, pretty, pretty decent run and uh, watched, you know, Jim Zorn and um, Steve Largent and company uh, in person and, and, and John Elway would visit and we hated him. Um, everyone hated John Elway and uh, it was, it was a lot of fun. So you go where we sat in the kingdom were the temporary bleacher seats and there was a lot of them in there. They bring them in and out for baseball and these things, um, we found out made a lot of noise. And so Seattle fans from the very, very beginning, and we didn't know anything about being fans. You know, we didn't have any, you know, history of um, professional sports, you know, in, in Seattle other than the Sonics at that time. And so we, we figured out that if you stomped on these things, it would just be this crazy earth shattering noise and, and obnoxiousness coming from all the fans. And so that's kind of how the noise thing started. And then there was this character that just appeared out of nowhere called beer, Bill, the beer man. And <laughs> he's, he was, you know, he started out selling beers and all of a sudden this guy's like leading cheers. And I was like, dad, like, how can this guy lead cheers? And, and his, his, you know, the people that employ him would still, you know, give him a job. Anyway, he just, that just ended up being his shtick. And, um, 
So he started yelling, you know, across the, the stadium. He had this big booming voice and he would yell, see, and the other side was a hawks and just in the back and forth. And, and then at some point, you know, I think in the season two or three, um, and I think it started at the University of Washington, there was the wave and you bring that in um, and he'd get that thing going. And, and he would, he would literally spend the time to teach all the sections around the kingdom, how this thing was supposed to work. And so by the time, you know, two or three games in the season goes, he's leading this wave thing that starts and, you know, and, and this thing got rolling to where you'd have like four or five waves going simultaneously around the stadium at, at one time. And that's why they call it the wave because it was just crazy and lots of noise and fun. And, you know, growing up, you know, I didn't realize how, you know, kind of stupid and idiotic it was, you know, eventually. But when it was novel, when it first started, it was just, it was a lot of fun to be a participant in a crowd in the kingdom. And it was very loud and, and uh, we loved to be able to affect plays and stuff. And, and so that, that lore of the 12th man began at, at that point. And it was, it was a lot of fun. And we saw a lot of uh, great, uh, innovative games that the talent on the field, you know, early on, Keith wasn't that good. Jack Patera was the coach. He'd been an assistant coach at Minnesota. Um, come over, we had, we had an expansion draft. Um, Steve Niehaus, I think, was the first player overall taken. He was a defensive tackle. Um, we ended up getting uh, Steve Largent in a trade. He was originally from Tulsa, but Dallas traded him to us, I believe. It was Dallas um, yeah, for, for almost nothing. He was an eighth round pick and they gave him to Seattle for next to nothing. Yeah. Right. And we had this kid, Jim <laughs> Zorn, nobody had ever heard about. He was a left-handed quarterback. I thought that was fantastic. Undrafted. Because I, I liked yep. uh, Fran Tarkington. So, you know, and he kind of had that in him a little bit and a little spunky guy. And uh, it was just a lot of fun. You know, it didn't, the wins and losses at that point really didn't matter. And the expectations early for, for everyone were zero. And so um, I think early on, you know, that first season we had uh, two wins. I think one of those came against the other expansion franchise, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And um, yeah, just, just crazy. Uh, Jack Patera, the coach. I mean, it was, and I don't remember, you know, Sherman, I think was the running back and I'm trying to, you know, Steve Rabel uh, was, was another uh, wide receiver at that point, went on to be a great voice for the, for the Seahawks. Mm -hmm. uh, Pete Gross was the radio man um, early, and he called games uh, fantastic. In fact, he ended up being in the Ring of Honor after he passed. Um, Wayne Cody, dude, this guy was a big, big, big man, and um, he was just a fixture, you know, on radio in in um, Seattle at the time. But to see, a, you know, you never got to see these guys in person until you showed up at these events. And Wayne Cody'd go around the stadium. He'd you know, high five people and yell and I, and so that was a lot of fun. And, um, yeah, it was just a great experience growing up with a team like that. Really. I just, it, it definitely stayed with me, obviously to this very day. Um, just once you're, once you have that in you, it just, it does not go away. Okay. So I've done my piece. How about, <laughs> how about you, Keith? How did it get started for you? So for me, um, I mean, I was, the, the team is a year older than I am. Um, and so, and really, um, so I, I wasn't even here for the first year and I don't remember much 
you know, uh, other than I, my dad was a huge fan, like from day one and, and, and watched the games and stuff. And uh, he'd actually grown up a Raiders fan, not for any connection to the Raiders, but simply because they were the West coast team and, you know, being from the Pacific Northwest um, there wasn't a team up in that area. So you, you, you pick the, the, the most West coast team. And to him, that was the Raiders. So he, he was a Raiders fan until now there was a local team and he was a hundred percent. I'm going to support this team. This is our team. Um, and so uh, he, you know, watched all the games and, and that. And, and so when I was little, I was always there. And um, I can remember watching a lot of games, not having any clue what I was watching, but I was just there hanging out with, with my dad. And then, um, you know, 1983 was supposed to be a big deal. And this is, um, yeah. uh, Chuck Knox is there put together just an incredible defense and, um, uh, drafted a running back that was going to mm-hmm. carry this team and looked like they were going to be a team that could go win a super bowl. And, it was a big deal. So then the, the game is, became like must see. And so we sat down and watched every minute of every game. Um, and again, I still had no idea what I was looking at and um, being a, a little kid did not get into the running game um, <clears throat> as much, but I was, I was there. Um, what got me was the 84 season because in the, in the, in the first game, um, Kurt Warner goes down with an, a mm. devastating knee injury, which took one of the more talented and just fun running backs ever and really shortened and his career. And, and literally took, everyone Keith thought that season was lost when yeah. Kurt Warner went down because he was the offense the year before. And Chuck Knox was, you know, ground Chuck is what they called him because he was going to run the ball on every play. And he had like, that was his thing. Um, and instead he, um, was forced to open up the offense and throw it around and for one year we had air check um and it was exciting there was a he and dave was, craig dave craig emerged yeah dave craig really um emerged and and you know largent really excelled that year and and um the offense was carried by the by the passing game and this was much more fun and exciting and that's what got me hooked um was watching dave craig sling the ball around um and you know do fun things make the playoffs um all of that like they weren't good enough to contend for a super bowl that year because you get into the especially back then you get into the playoffs if you can't run the ball you're you're not winning games um and they couldn't run the ball um well they they had a guy like dan dornick remember dan dornick he's the guy that kind of took over for for running the ball then Um, yeah um, <laughs> and, and, uh, Hughes, a guy by the name of Hughes, I think was there. Um, yeah, it, yeah. it just didn't, we just didn't have really anybody, you know, yeah, we scored yeah, a lot wasn't. of points, but, but we couldn't really put up the yards. Um, couldn't keep the other team off the field. Yeah. Couldn't, um, run the clock later in games. They just, th- there was a lot of things, um, that meant they weren't going to have playoff success, but during the regular season, that was a fun season. And like I said, that's what, that's the year that got me hooked. Um, was it was an eighty four? Um, I mean, I was like seven, <laughs> so it's uh, yeah. and still at that age, 
I don't know much about what I'm watching, but I knew that I liked what I was watching and it was a lot of fun. And that's what really got me into football. Well, I tell you, you know, the, and, and that transition, that 83, 84 thing was really cool. Cause in 83, we exceeded all expectations. So the 83 thing, you know, Chuck Knox came in, that was a big deal. You know, mm-hmm. that was our first big deal uh, coach to come in and accept a position in, in Seattle. He had had much success with the Rams, had some great players that played under him and all that kind of stuff. Um, we finished, you know, I think nine and seven, <clears throat> excuse me, something like that. We defeated the, the Denver Broncos in the wild card game, Keith. And there were no expectations that we could even get past Denver. Denver was kind of the arch nemesis of Seattle. Once in a while, we'd get our wins in, but they, they usually won the day. And then um, we went to the AFC championship game. <clears throat> well, after Denver, we went to Miami. And we had the, the game in Miami that nobody expected us to win. Dan Marino against David Craig. What? Are you kidding me? And then Steve Largent had that reception at the end of the game, like the, the 40, 40 yards some odd down the sideline catch to put us in a position to, to score. And we did. We ended up winning that game on the road and then facing the Los Angeles Raiders in the uh, AFC championship game. A lot of folks don't remember that. But, you know, I, I didn't have much hope that we would win. I know my dad at the time was thinking, well, we weren't going to win, and we ended up not winning. Um, but, but that's something else. And then the 84 season, we ended up going 12 and four. We lost, um, uh, Kurt Warner down early in the season. We still had a great record. Dave Craig really came on and just carried that team. You mentioned the defense, Dave Brown and Harris, um, and Kenny Easley. So good. Yeah. And Jacob green and Jeff Bryant. And you know, those, those sorts of guys came, came on and, um, some of my favorite players, you know, for sure. Dave Brown was just an amazing guy. Um, Eugene Robinson came, came a little later, but um, those guys, you know, were fantastic um, defensive backs and uh, just had um, ball hawks and just, you know, made stuff happen on the back end for sure. Yeah. Uh, I just remember like that, that group, that, um, that defense just was, it was smothering. Um, one of the the better defenses that Seattle, probably the best defense that Seattle had pre Legion of Boom era, um, and just overwhelmed teams at times. That was when uh, you had an under undersized Joe Nash. Remember that in the mm-hmm. middle? Yeah, he was he was in the middle there. Yeah, it was a fun team. Fun team. Yeah. So okay, so. And then, you know, we, we kind of fluttered a while. Um, and then Ken Baring ended up buying that team yeah. at some point I, I, yeah. in the late eighties or something they, or 1990 or something like that. Ken Baring bought that team yeah. and, um, and, and then after that, we just really didn't do very well. Knox ended up leaving eventually. I think, was it, um, Tom Flores? I think mm-hmm. ended up coming in and being the coach. He was kind of a friend of Ken Baring. He was a, a bit, general manager and president before that, and then took yeah. over as coach after firing. And he was a good. He was a good executive. Yeah. I think he also had some good coaching years there in, in um, with the Raiders. You know, he did. Oh, he them, won won two titles with the Raiders. Yeah, yeah. Took took them to, to the Super Bowl, and so uh, there was some hope that that he, that could continue. But we just didn't have the the, the talent, the roster around him and and turns out he wasn't 
really that great of a coach. I think it, it pointed more to the success that Oakland had in their front office, mm-hmm. uh, building a roster, um, than, than him as a coach, I think. But he ended up going into the hall of fame at some point, didn't he? He went be, in, in, in like a couple a, years as an ago. Executive? He went in a couple of years ago. Um, and yeah, it was as, uh, well, it was as a coach because of his time in, 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 um, uh, in Oakland. Yeah. Um, although I think at the time it was Los Angeles, but with the Raiders, we'll just go with that. Um, right. what that one, that really bugged me because, and maybe this is inaccurate because again, I was younger. Um, but it felt like he came in to Seattle with the goal of tearing the franchise apart. It so that seemed Kay, like it. So that we Ken Baring could move them because he, um, jettisoned talent drafted as poorly as you possibly could ran out a good coach, um, then became the coach and looked like an awful coach. Uh, and so it yes. just was one of those things where you're like, how, how can a guy that won two titles be this bad? And then you start to think, well, maybe he's doing it on purpose because yeah, he was friends with, um, Ken Baring. Uh, with Ken Baring and Ken Baring wanted the team to move to LA. Yeah. He had, a, he, Ken Baring started out, you know, nobody really kind of knew what he was about. Although there were some misgivings. I just remember being uneasy a little. Une- and I was a kid, you know, essentially, um, you know, 20, 20 some something year old at that point. And um, I remember they moved like the, uh, the executive offices first, like, and, and had them there in LA for, for a couple of seasons um, yeah, operations. And then we hired like Dennis Erickson, I think after Flores and somewhere in there is when the sneaky sort of behavior started happening with Ken Baring and company. And they like, they moved this team in the middle of the night at, at one point. Um, the team was in, in bankruptcy, um, during this, era. Um, and you know, it was, it was just nuts. So Warren moon was the quarterback, um, during, during this time. I don't know if people remember Warren moon being on the roster for, for very long, but he was there for a couple of seasons. I and this, I, um, think, I thought he came later after that. I thought this was still the, the Dave, like it was the Dave Craig era. And then it was like kind of that. Limbo yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Or right after Dave Craig, when it, when they were, going with Kelly Stoffer and Dan McGuire and, um, you're right. Moon was a right moon was right after, um, um, Paul Allen bought the team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So bearing, they, they were trying to move one of his justifications for trying to move out of Seattle was he didn't think that the kingdom was earthquake safe, which is funny because he was trying to move the team to LA um <laughs> and it probably wasn't if it was in la i yeah. mean you know seattle you know has has a few shakes now and then but uh, yeah you know there was a point in the kingdom keith where tiles would start falling off the roof and all that kind of stuff and um yep. yeah it, it became a situation where you did feel a little unsettled in there um i'll be you know completely honest it was it was the cheapest possible building that they could build um at you know at the time i'm sure it was you know millions and millions of dollars but the king county owned that stadium 
this was the, the county project, not the team. And um, yeah, mm-hmm. anyway. All right. So, so Dennis Erickson owns it. Ken Baring decides to transfer the, you know, the team um, to LA that the league and the, the entire league and the league office completely protested, told him yeah. no, no, un, no uncertain terms. This thing uh, basically was going to, um, it was going to go into bankruptcy and there was a chance that we could lose the franchise. <clears throat> and that's when Paul Allen stepped in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause the, the, um, you know, Flores had kind of run the team into the ground, um, both, um, on a business standpoint as the team president and as a football standpoint, as the general manager and coach, um, people stopped coming to games and it was a mess. And so they were, um, uh, yeah, it was, the team was in bankruptcy, but I, it honestly, the whole thing felt orchestrated. Um, but the problem was he wanted to move them to LA. That was, I mean, he was from there that, that this felt like it was this, the, the idea from the beginning was that he wanted to try and get, um, to LA, um, because he thought that, you know, biggest market and it's, it's going to make money there and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the league stepped in and said, no, in part because, um, the Rams and Raiders still were fighting, believing that they had rights to that market. Um, and so you have to go through like, you know, the league procedures for relocation and they didn't do any of that. They were just, nope, suddenly we're, we're an LA team. Um, so the league stepped in and orchestrated, um, the sale and got, uh, bearing out of there, which is yeah. the best thing that's ever happened to the Seahawks. Agreed. Um, and, and, and Paul Allen. Yeah. And then Paul Allen is stepped in, um, yeah. and, and bought the team, which, which is awesome. Like, I mean, that, that's been their thing. Um, there's an interesting story with the, the Paul Allen purchase. Um, I know there's like a lot of, um, at least around, cause I, I live, um, you know, in, in Southwest Washington and so the, closer to Portland and around here, everybody hates Jody Allen, um, because of, you know, the trailblazers and all of that, but she's been very active with Seattle, the Seahawks. And, um, there's a reason why the team has made like some pretty big moves and has continued to, to not, um, be risk adverse, um, while she's been in charge because football is more her thing. And so she, when, when the, when the team was leaving and all of that was happening, um, in 88, she went to her brother, Jody Allen did and said, being where we are financially as a family, we have a moral obligation to this community to use our resources to help and convinced him to buy the Seahawks. Um, we have a lot uh, to thank, you know, Jody Allen for as far as keeping of uh, uh, the NFL team in Seattle. And, um, you know, he, he spent $200 million on the franchise <laughs> and yeah. he worked out a deal to build a new stadium, you know, and, yep. and, and, that's the uh, real big thing too. Major legacy for Paul Allen, really. I mean, yeah. we talk about a, an amazing owner, amazing person, a philanthropist, um, you know, a guy that just really invested in the, in the community. I mean, man, his signature is all over this franchise. And it started with the Nordstrom's, you know, mm-hmm. and then the Ken Baring years, but then Paul Allen and now Jody and, and the, the, the trust. And, uh, and it's a, it's a good, 
it's a good situation. You know, Jody's turned out to be a, a, a really good owner. I don't understand um, the angst there. I think there is some angst a little bit only because of the way the trust was set up and, and kind of dictated that the team be sold at some point. I think there's been some clarity there over time. Um, and, and there's no real move to, to sell the team, at least the Seahawks in any, mm-hmm. you know, near term. I think it's, you know, I heard of something it's, it's within the next 10 years or something like that. Yeah, that's, I heard, well, basically they, um, it had basically has like a 20 year limit. Um, but one of the things that might happen is they, it, the trust might sell the team to Jody Allen. Jody Allen. Um, and she would just take over as you know, owner instead of the trust, but she's, she's the owner now anyway, cause she's the one in charge of the trust. So she runs the team. Um, and she has done a good job, um, with the Seahawks and, and what she's done and, and, um, <laughs> it's been a, it's been a good fit. Um, but yeah, the whole Paul Allen, like purchasing the team and everything. I mean, that was, uh, it was like, it was a godsend. Really? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a, it, it was a franchise rescued. saving move. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So before we go into like the Mike Holmgren years and, and current history, um, tell me like, okay, tell me, you know, if you can, your, your top, five ranked Seahawks from inception to the year 2000 and, and what you remember most about those seasons and those players and all that kind of stuff. Um, well, one would be Steve Largent, um, simply because he was, uh, as someone, you know, I was pretty young then and, and didn't quite know what I was looking at with in terms of the game he was the guy that you saw a lot because he was the guy catching all the passes and uncoverable. I loved um, that he was described trying to cover him as like trying to cover air um, because of his ability to just change direction and, and get you turned around and, and everything. Just um, one of the greatest in NFL history at getting separation and mm. didn't ever drop a pass. Um, he led the, uh, the team in uh receptions and yards for 12 consecutive seasons yeah that's that's amazing you think about what we've got now with dk medcalf and tyler lockett you know those guys have been primo tyler lockett you know for six seasons um and and then you think about largent and and just 12 um, amazing amazing really and he and he did all of that in a in era where um you got manhandled on every play by the, by the cornerbacks. And, uh, there was no, he was in a tough division, boy, Denver and uh, Denver and Oakland had some Mm -hmm. of the best corners and and most physical corners in the entire NFL. Yeah. And, um, just continued to be dominant, quietly dominate, um, the whole time and had tons and tons of NFL records, most of which were eclipsed by Jerry Rice. Um, not long after but at one point he held up now nowadays like those records don't seem as impressive because you look at modern passing stats and you're like oh well there's a a whole bunch of people that have eclipsed them but the rules have certainly changed since then absolutely yeah absolutely and the quarterbacks have gotten more athletic and and just better i mean to be completely honest i mean steve largen's quarterbacks were jim zorn and dave craig yeah but. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you know what I mean? I mean, those guys are great for Seahawks fans, but league wide, you know, those are average middling guys. 
You know, Dave Craig had some, you know, some amazing seasons though as a passer. Um, some of the smallest hands you'll ever see on a human being. It, it, they couldn't have measured any more than like eight inches. Oh, you know, they were, they had to have been under that. Um, because he led the league. It's still, I mean, in the history of the National Football League, I mean, he's he's in the top five as far as fumbles. He's number one. Um, number one overall for fumbles as, yeah. a, as a quarterback or at, at any position. Out of any position. He's got more yeah. fumbles than than anyone in, in NFL history. But he, but he also had like a stupid long 18-year career or something like that. Yeah, you know? he did. And that's part of why he ended up with the 45,000 yards passing. And, you know, it's a crazy passing. He's top 10 quarterback in yeah. passing yards and stuff. Still, which, but um, part of that is an 18 year career. Um, right. And uh, like just really long career did. And was, I don't know. He's kind of the, he wasn't really, I wouldn't say call him the face of the Seahawks, but he was the leader of the offense. Um, him and, and um, uh, him and Largent. Uh, and it yep. was just, that's just what it was. So yeah. So we'll, those two are definitely my top 10. Um, Walter Jones. Uh, as I learned more about football, um, you know, later, as we got uh, into the later 80s and into the 90s, Walter Jones became um, such an underappreciated guy. And I look at left tackles that we've had since, and this is a guy that had like three holding penalties or five holding penalties his entire career. Um yeah. multiple year all pro left tackle with like five holding penalties in his final year and like and, and a hand and a, literally a handful of sacks yeah allowed. um and of those five holding penalties two of them came in his final game um and that's when he decided he didn't want to play anymore yeah well because he was done i mean his knee yeah, was shot right, um right. and so and that and it it's been a long time with the team trying to find an answer uh mm -hmm. and it, it's been hit and miss mostly miss trying to find an answer there and unfortunately for some of the guys that have come after him no one's ever going to live up to um walter jones as a guy that's um you know if, if that's the bar if that's the standard no one's ever going to reach it because he was that good uh, yeah. Yeah. and then on the other side of the ball, I mean, Cortez Kennedy, how do you not? This is a guy that kind of revolutionized the position. Defensive tackles before him were the big fat guys that has ate up space in the middle and, and stopped the run. And, mm -hmm. um, and that was it. Um, Kennedy came in and was <clears throat> quick. He was into the backfield. He lived in the backfield, um, <clears throat> was a sack like monster. Um, a lot of tackles for loss against running backs, not because, um, you know, he was he, he was just unblockable at times. He would just go right between center and guard. They double team him; it wouldn't matter. Um, and uh, just a dominant, dominant player, um, Hall of Famer, multi-year um, All-Pro, um, one of the yeah, one of the greatest ever. Um, really, he set the stage for a guy like Warren Sapp to exist. Uh, another guy who is, um, mm -hmm. you know, a Hall of Famer. Absolutely. But but teams probably wouldn't have given Warren Sapp the um, playing time and the ability to come in and do what he did um, because he would have 
being undersized. They would have viewed him as a, a guy that is only good on third down. Um, but Kennedy really changed what teams were looking for in, in, in defensive tackles. He wanted a guy that could get upfield, get penetration. And, uh, he, he was always fun to watch. Yeah. Um, and then after that, God, there's just a whole list of guys oh, um, sure. that freaking love, but, um, well, I'll tell you some, some players, you know, out of the early era, and then we can talk about the, the latest, uh, history. But, you know, the, some of my favorite players, obviously, uh, Steve Largent. I like, you know, Jim Zorn, Kurt Warner, um, Kenny Easley, Dave Brown, for sure, Steve Largent. Kenny, Kenny Easley is the name that, um, <clears throat> that, that's, that stands out. Um, one of the greatest safeties to ever play it. And people don't yeah. know that. They don't recognize him because he had a short career. Um, but Ronnie Lott came out and started campaigning for Kenny Easley to make the hall of fame saying that he thought that Easley was the, um, was the only safety that had been better than him. And then he deserved it. And honestly, like a lot of people would, would, would raise an eyebrow at that because Ronnie Lott might be the greatest of all time at at the safety position. But Ronnie Lott thinks that Kenny Easley was better than him. And that says a lot. Can you think about like the ego that, that, guys at this level have and and not wanting to say anything about that but um easily was so good just the enforcer and um you know you think back just to the 83 season when he had 10 interceptions yeah as a safety and that, nobody had the interceptions yeah. like that in a year um well I, you know another guy I'll, I'll mention is uh Eugene Robinson now he he um he doesn't get all the credit and he had come some off the field uh, stuff eventually but as a football player as a as a mm-hmm. guy that was a ball um uh, you know played on the on the ball it was one of the best in the nfl he ended up with like 56 or 60 interceptions in his career um the 50 of those were with the seahawks you know the it, 50 interceptions you know mm-hmm. that's that's crazy and then uh jacob green i think is underrated to be completely honest oh yeah um the guy had 112 uh career sacks and for three of the three of his career seasons, they didn't keep those stats. <laughs> so he had three years early in, you know, his rookie in the second, first and second year that they didn't even keep track of sacks yet mm-hmm. um, as a stat. So, you know, he had, I'm sure he had, you know, at least uh, probably 20 more to add to that pile. Um, had Joe Nash into the group of Joe Nash, uh, of what an underrated group. dog. Yeah. That guy was a dog. Oh Yeah right yeah. up front nose tackle um you want to talk about doing the dirty work on pl- every play he made everyone around him better um so all right just, yeah 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 since we were talking about easily and 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 those guys I, I i looked it up real quick um that team 83 had 38 interceptions in a 14 game season yeah they had five in one game against Kansas yeah. City. um and three of those it, were returned for touchdowns uh i was at that game that's that would have been a fun game to go to um they yeah. they turned the ball over 63 times <laughs> in a 14 game season wow. like do do the math there right yeah, it's hard it's hard <laughs> to it's hard to turn the ball over that that much that's, that's four turnovers a game that this defense uh collected okay so before this show gets completely out of out of whack 
let's talk so it's already about, out of black. Let's talk about <laughs> the, the Mike Holmgren era, and then and then we got to give some props to to Pete Carroll as well. So, you know, Holmgren comes in in 1999. The mm-hmm. the, the new stadium's getting built, new ownership, new direction. Uh, Holmgren, uh, after Flores and Erickson, um, was a was a much needed turn. Uh, mm-hmm. Holmgren came in having won the Super Bowl with the Green Bay Packers, came in with some gravitas, um, and kind of did turn this thing around. Um, I'm trying to look and see. Started out with a nine and seven record in that, 1999. That, that first nine and seven record is interesting because they were eight and two. Um, and they looked like world beaters and then could not get another win and finally got one like the second to last game. And you want to talk about backing into the playoffs. Um, there is no greater example of backing into the playoffs yeah. than uh, than that team. But it did kind of it did kind of set the, the tone for, um, you know, a team like that was going to be around and going to be a player. It took them a while. I mean, the, the 2001, two, uh, 2000, 2001, 2002 teams were not that good. Yeah. And it took them a little while to kind of develop. But by the time they got to the 2003 season, um, mm-hmm. they, they were really good, actually. Um, they, they went 10 and 6, but they scored 404 points on offense, allowed 327 on, on defense. They really started to come in on, the, on their own. But that 2005 season, was special not only because we went to the Super Bowl, but it was just a special season. Matt Hasselbeck came to an into his own. Sean Alexander had an MVP season. Um, that they had just a, a really nice roster overall, and it, that was that was a fun season. Um, they was. ended up with. Go ahead. I would say it. The whole season was derailed, um, and, and when I say derailed, I just mean they they didn't win the Super Bowl, um, pretty much entirely because of playing fourth string safeties during the Super Bowl. Um, Kenny Hamlin was the starting free safety and he had gotten hit with a stop sign because someone had pulled a stop sign out and hit him in, over the head with it at, down at, um, you know, down there by the stadium, um, yeah, yeah. you know, at a nightclub. And uh, so he ended up on an IR and then his backup ended up on IR and they just didn't have any safeties left uh, and couldn't, and the the whole thing just fell apart because of injuries, but all of it was at one position, and it was it was really unfortunate. But that was a um, that was a good good team. Well, one of the favorite memories I have from that was uh, the NFC Championship game against the Carolina Panthers at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad and I went to that game, and. Um, that was just that was the the first time you at, you reached the Super Bowl is just one of those moments that is etched and burned into you, um and and will never mm-hmm. leave. It was just a special moment to reach that thing. Mike Holmgren, uh, Sean Alexander had a great game on the defensive side. We stopped Steve Smith, and and um and their their quarterback it was you know came in red hot their offense and we just shut them down um and then exploded enough on on our offensive side of the ball we won that game and that was just the celebration i'll never forget it was just crazy the mayhem steve smith was offensive player of the year that year i believe um or what because it was like one of them was alexander and the other one was smith smith had, had just had um what it was uh an unbelievable receiver uh or season as a receiver and 
and um, just put up these monster, monster numbers and looked yep. unstoppable. And what Seattle did to slow him down, which which was weird and, and kind of crazy, and you still don't see teams do this um, today, but they put Leroy Hill, a linebacker, the weak side linebacker, out on him, not to cover him. The entire job was to just hit him. Knock him at off. At the line of scrimmage on every play and then release him and go like and go do your linebacker things um but they literally lined a linebacker up on him to hit him on every play um and it worked because the, he didn't know what to do the team didn't know what to do and um, and delome their their quarterback was a timing guy mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and uh it just it worked and it was one of those tactical things that you come up with and you're like god it was really like those are the kinds of things that you just notice and you're just like okay this is what coaching is this is what um having a guy that can come in and and do those things it really does matter yeah and they were really one-dimensional they came in one-dimensional they were and and Mm -hmm. and uh we had a good plan for them that was fun you know and we all know about the super bowl don't need to rehash that um but you know we got there um it, it just didn't work out um and that team eventually fell apart and um, transitioned to Mora after Holmgren left in, uh, what was it, 2008. Mora mm-hmm. came in in 2009, single season, uh, awful uh, season, really. Mm-hmm. Um, took a, 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 what was apparently a decent roster and just completely trashed it. Oh, in, I mean, Holmgren's last year was 12, 4 and 12. And yeah, there were a bunch of injuries and all of that, but the roster was old. It was not, it, mm-hmm. it had, it had deteriorated like crazy under Tim Ruskell, the, the general manager at the time. Um, the, what was different with Mora was that the team was no longer well coached. They were a mess. Um, there was talk of favoritism yeah, um, yes. and he had lost that locker room early on. And so even when, at one point, uh, the executives were like, no, we should keep more probably because he's only had one year and because they signed him to a big contract. Mm-hmm. Um, but guys had to step in and be like, no, we got to get rid of this guy. Cause yeah, Louis, Louis, I think was, mm-hmm. was the executive that made that decision and went out yep. to Los Angeles and basically camped with uh, Pete Carroll for, for a while and got <laughs> him to agree because the year prior, Pete Carroll had been in discussions about coming into the NFL, and he just didn't have a deal where he felt mm-hmm. like he could have enough control in order to build the, the, the system and the team and the culture that he felt like he needed. And yeah. sure, sure enough, that, you know, that single hire, and, and it, was, it was one of those hires where it wasn't completely well-liked in Seattle at the time. It oh, came I, from I USC. Like uh, everyone from the University of Washington, Washington State, was very familiar with Pete Carroll. Did not like him, and uh-huh. did, and so that was that was an amazing transformation. I have to say, um, really that smart. once he got in um, to to Seattle and spent a, a few seasons here, uh, people got to know Pete and realized what kind of a human being he was. And uh-huh. uh, hats off to to Pete Carroll because. So that was a tough, tough deal to overcome. And he I didn't did. like, I didn't like the hire of Pete Carroll. Um, and it wasn't the, the college like, oh, I don't like him because he coached USC or any of that. It was more of um, 
his style, his like rah rah, you know, style works good. It with almost seemed arrogant I, from a distance, you know, if you weren't um, really paying attention. It, I, 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 I really question on whether it would work with pros. Mm. Um, you look at his time in New England and the Jets, because uh, he had, you know, two previous head coaching stints in the NFL. Neither of them went great, although in both of them, it was a case of a roster that was um, evaporating out from underneath him. And he didn't have any roster control or any anything um, there, which is, I think, part of the reason why he wanted a situation like Seattle where they were going to give him control of those things because he looked bad in those previous stints because his GMs were bad. Um, but he'd gone to USC. He had tremendous success there. And we're like, okay, well, this is one of those guys that that it works in college, but it doesn't mean it's going to work in the pros. And we've seen a lot of guys like that. Um, Nick Saban comes to mind um who's you know probably the greatest college coach of all time but was miserable in in uh miami when he was there and um uh, i was worried that that's what this hire was but it wasn't um part of it was carol getting a chance to pick his own gm and doing such a good job getting a guy that he could work with um they have such a good relationship with him and, and schneider um and part of it was me just not understanding all of what it means to make a culture um, and to be in charge of an organization, not just a football team. And Carol has done that as good as anyone in the NFL and guys want to play here. Um, guys want to be here. Guys will, you know, run through a wall for him. Um, we've seen guys um, that were on the practice squad, not taking 53 man roster jobs on other teams um, because they didn't want to leave Seattle. And that has all to do with Carol and the um, environment that he created uh, around this team. No, absolutely. And a, and a winning culture, you know, this mm -hmm. team had not, this franchise historically uh, had not had very many winning seasons and, and in between winning seasons, there were a lot of losing seasons. A lot yep. of heartache, a lot of bad play, a lot of bad quarterbacks, et cetera. One of the exciting things when he came in, uh, in addition to, to bringing that culture, which was evident right away, was the fact that they needed to and wanted to turn this roster over and make it into his image. You know, and they took a, a five-win team or whatever it was um, to a seven-win team. And, and somehow or another eked into the playoffs that first year. Um, and 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 or was it the second year I no it was the first year first, first year. year and then had and, then, and traded for marshawn lynch was a big big deal we didn't know it at the time um, because he had kind of failed and, and washed out in buffalo and it turns out it really wasn't his his situation he's kind of a misunderstood uh guy but extremely talented and uh, character and uh, and physical just a physical beast of a of a, of a running back and when he came in, you know, it took him a while, but mm -hmm. they got to that playoff game. And in that one play, Beastquake completely changed the identity of the, the team. Not only the, just the offense, but the, the team itself uh, became this larger than life, Beastquake, I'm going to run you over type of mentality. And that carried over to, you know, to the next season. It didn't go as, as well. We still won seven games, but they continued to turn that roster around. We had a good draft. Um, and then we got to that 
2012 season. Um, Bobby Wagner came on, Russell Wilson, um, it, which I believe should be mentioned as far as some of the, the great players that we've been talking about. I know he had a rough exit uh, and, and season last year, but what he was able to do for this franchise, I think, is, is right up there with, with some of the greats. Um, deserves to be on the on the ring of honor at some point in his um in his life and uh that that turnaround uh with pete carroll inst- instigating that and then the run we started making in 2012 um you know as we got better and russell wilson got better as, as the year went on and we almost eked that thing out in atlanta in his rookie season and we were ready that 2013 season uh, to to really make a run, and it was a remark that that three years it, we were just weren't used to that as fans being able to turn around a, a really bad roster, and all of a sudden we're in discussions about being a really really good team, and we were a really good team, and it was fantastic. Um, I mean that um, the whole transition with that roster um, was interesting because it him coming in and wanting to turn the roster over coincided with a weird collective bargaining issue um, that the league had been having with the union and they ended up with an uncapped year. So there was one year with no salary cap, which which meant there was no salary cap rules, which meant you could cut guys um, with bad contracts and not have the whole dead money issue. So they, (laughs) yeah, they unloaded some bad contracts. Uh, TJ Hushmanzada comes to mind where they paid him like $8 million to play for someone else. Not that he wasn't um, still a player or anything, but they just didn't want that contract. And it gave them an opportunity to get rid of it. And they were able to just unload um, some bad contracts and they got really young, really fast. Um, and they churned the roster like 200 and what was it? 232 roster moves. In a year. And they had some uh, decent draft picks. You know, they had some decent draft picks. They drafted early in the draft that, you know, I think in 2011, um, they ended up getting Russell Okung and uh, Earl Thomas, you know, mm-hmm. in, the, in the first round. And, and um, yeah, just great draft, like two or three great drafts in a row made that team. And, yeah, and, really and also, you know, hats off to Schneider as well, as far as free agency is concerned as, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it kept Brandon Mebane for a while and uh, went out and got, um, Michael Bennett and Cliff Averill and, um, and, and then lucked out really with Richard Sherman turning out to be, you know, world's greatest cornerback, uh, for, for a time there and Earl Thomas to, you know, play the backhand and camp chancellor and Bobby Wagner and KJ Wright. I mean, the list was just a huge. Um, and, and what a fun time to be a fan. And, you know, the, the last several years have been hard at, at, at some level, still kind of a playoff team, but fringy and not when we get to the playoffs, we haven't been doing well. Um, and there's been a lot of complaints about Pete Carroll and needing to move on and he's archaic and he deserves to go and he just hasn't kept up with the times and so forth. I would argue just the opposite in, in a sense and that he's one of the most adaptable coaches I've ever seen um, to be completely honest. He's actually done a good job um, in terms of that. There was a point where there was um, there, there was a realistic, I believe um, 
people talking about the, the league kind of passing him by because he was refusing to adapt, wanting to run the same defense, the same offense, not change things. Um, and they with continual diminishing returns as it went. But what happened was he, I think he recognized what was going on. The whole like, let's run this back and, and do it another year because we've got this nice core. And if we can just put it together, we can win another Super Bowl. And they were trying to not change until it got to a point where they just kind of had to. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it wasn't, I don't think it was Pete Carroll trying to be stubborn. It was trying to just do what, what he could do to get another win. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and and he had a core talent and, and all of that and didn't want to have to um, change the roster in order to change the system until they got to a point where they had to. And he's jettisoned the defensive coaching staff and brought in a new one. Um, then he did it again um, in order to try and, and get to a point where they had um, it was more adaptable, completely changed the offensive scheme and, and what they want to do. Yes, they're still running the ball a lot, but um, the whole organization of it is so much different from early to the Brian Schottenheimer years and then to to what it is now um, under Shane Waldron. So the like everything is is different. He's evolved in a way that I think people just don't give him credit for running a completely different system on defense, a completely different system on offense. But what hasn't changed is Pete Carroll and the culture of winning that he creates. Uh, behind yeah. the scenes. Well, I think the sheer talent on defense that he had was the difference. I mean, you go take a look at the point differentials he had between 12, 2012 and 2015, they were substantial. Uh, 167 in 2012, 186, 140, 146. After the 2015 a year, it went down to 62, then 34, then 81, then seven. Um, and then last year it was six, you know. There's that the point differential, and that's how you win games. Um, is you just you score more points than than you give up, and mm-hmm. um, you know when it's that close, you're going to be a a 500 team at best. And so I, you know, as far as like getting ready for this season, I expect that to really start to turn now. You got an offense that's going to be explosive. I expect them to score close to five, 450 points in uh, in the regular season. And I expect that defense, instead of giving up 400 points, I expect them to give up closer to 300 points. And so I expect now to start to see that transformation where we can put up, you know, 12, 13 wins. Um, and we're in, we're in that kind of conversation right now, that sort of window. Um, and, I, you know, as far as Pete Carroll is concerned, I think he's cemented for me uh, as the best coach in Seahawks history um, and deserving to be in the Hall of Fame. and and. I, for one, when he's gone, Keith, it's going to be a sad day for me because there's something about Pete Carroll and that culture that is unique and special. And another coach may come in and, and win uh, and, and may not. Um, but we went through a very long history. You know, this, this franchise has been going now, we, we determined close to 47 years. Um, there's been a couple of good coaches in this, in this history. Um, and it's, and we've only had eight head coaches in that whole time, but, um, it's been a remarkable run here this last 13 years. And I think hopefully another, another few, um, you said only had eight head coaches, which is actually like, um, Jacksonville does that that in like 10 years. Um, remarkably stable. 
But it does make me think of of Pittsburgh, who's on their third head coach, and the team has been around for like forty I years longer. Know. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Talk about um, whatever they do to hire coaches. Like, why doesn't other teams match that? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think you just get lucky. You just get lucky. You do. Everything's got to line up. You've got to have the personnel. You've got to have the GM. You've got to have uh, mm-hmm. the players, obviously. But you've got to also be a, a great coach. You're going from Chuck Noel to, you know, Mike Tomlin. Wow. Yep. And then, um, you know, you go from Mike Holmgren to Pete Carroll. I mean, that's that's a great run. That's a great run, really. Yeah. It doesn't it really get much is. better than that in the NFL. There's so much parody. There really is. It's built to be par, you know, have parity. Mm-hmm. Everything. So, you, yeah. so when you have two, when you have coaching that's better than at league average, you have you put yourself in the best place to to be successful. And I think you know both Mike Holmgren and Pete Carroll did that and continue to do that. So, any hoodlum. You want to talk yeah. about anything else? We might as well. We're we're at fifty eight minutes, and we could we could keep going <laughs> for a while. So, out of the last. Um, since 2010, what are your, who are your favorite players, Keith? Um, it's weird because like certain things happen and then, you know, the opinion kind of changes. And um, I loved Richard Sherman when he was in Seattle. I also know that he talked some crap on his way out and as he will do. Uh, and it, that wasn't a great look and all of that, but man, on the field, he was such a dominant player. He was so good. Yeah. Um, and and when it's all said and done later and you know, it, those things won't matter. Yep. Um, and a part of it though, was that um, he didn't get along with Russ. Um, and at the time it was a bad look for, for Sherman. Cause it was like, Oh, well, you're just jealous and all of that, which appeared it very much appeared to be, and and there was there was an element of that, um, but as things soured between Russ and Seattle, a lot of what Sherman was saying, like, you know, it kind of came to fruition, um, and it's like maybe people needed to have listened to to Sherman more, um, and and it would have been good. So he was there, Earl Thomas. I know, man, he's had some real issues since leaving Seattle, but one of the greatest safeties to ever play the game put him right up there with easily just dominant player um cam chancellor oh cam yeah. chancellor works yeah, right I mean, you're right you were just talking about the, these are the legion of boom guys right yeah um, well they, here's he, the here's here's the deal keith it's 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 they're all individually great players mm-hmm. they are they would have been great players on any team it's what they did together it's like it was magic it really was well, and you got to include Bobby Wagner in all of this. Um, and if you don't, you're crazy. Um, because he's such an integral piece of everything. Being that yeah. guy in the very middle, um, Hall of Fame guy, talent, and just, yeah, fantastic. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, Baldwin and, and um, Lynch, Marshawn Lynch. And, and then you add in um michael bennett and cliff averill and and i mentioned cam chancellor um and and the team was just special it it, you know that that you know four or five year six year run where all those guys were on on the roster it's just a it's a it's a you know that that sort of level of team and especially on the defense where you had kind of historic you led the the team in uh, league in scoring against 
uh, three or four consecutive years, which is unheard of. Um, and it's, it's definitely a testament to how they played together. Yeah. All right. Um, I think that's, that's it. I mean, we're, we got everybody caught up to the current, uh, current year, basically. Um, what's, what, how do you feel about this roster compared historically to other rosters? Um, I think that it's got, it's got good talent. Um, what it, I, 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 I know you and I disagree on this. I don't like the, the depth as much. I don't think it's a complete roster. Um, but honestly, the offense, find me a more talented offense in Seahawks history. I don't think yeah. you're going to find one. I agree with you. And, um, the defense though, I think when you compare it to, you know, the Chuck Knox era or, um, the earlier Pete Carroll era, it really just doesn't stand up. Last year we gave up the most points against, um, the, the third most points against in franchise history last year. And there's, now there's 17 there was, games now. Yes. But nonetheless, there's also some not. really bad teams in franchise history. Mm-hmm. We went this entire show without mentioning um, the 1992 team that was two and fourteen. Uh, <laughs> oh, but yeah. now we did. Um, it, but allowed, anyways, it allowed us to draft uh, Kennedy, though. Or no, Kennedy was on that team, wasn't he? Kennedy was on that team. He was. Kennedy was um, on that team. He, I think, he was defensive player of the year on yeah. a two and fourteen team. Wow. Because he had, he had. I think he had sixteen sacks. We scored 140 points that year. Yeah, the most anemic <laughs> offense of all time. <laughs> we scored 400 last year, just to give you an idea. Um, so there was also, you're talking about anemic offense, um, just trivia question. Um, there was a game in 79 where the Seahawks had what was, what's considered to be the worst offensive performance ever in league history, where they ended up with negative seven total yards of offense. Wow. Was that against <laughs> Kansas City? I believe it was at Kansas city where Smith had like six or seven sacks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It yeah. was bad. It was a, it was a rain bowl. Remember the the rain um, was no, that wasn't it. I, th- I think that was like a Warren moon era game, but yeah. Yeah. No, I'm right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm very curious to see the improvement on the defensive side of the ball this year, because when you really take a look at it and, and we thought, well, maybe the defense is better. Nah, they're pretty crappy. They were pretty crappy last year that both in rankings, in terms of stopping the run, defending the pass points allowed, et cetera. Somehow or another, I feel really good about the defense this year. And I haven't quite put it together. You, you mentioned it. Like, um, I feel better than you do. And I, I think you that's do. true. But nonetheless, we gave up a ton of points last year and a ton of yards. And somehow mm-hmm. or another, we need to get better at that. Why are my expectations so much better this year? Uh, as far know. as being able to have the defense come in and, and, and be, you know, 20, 25% better on points allowed. I, I, I said we might go from 400 to 300 this year. I don't know if that's true. I just know it's going to be closer to 300, I think, than 400. Yeah, I don't know why you're quite so. Maybe the um, offense is going to be so great that 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 the defense won't have to be on the field as much. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about it, though. I really am. I think this is an opportunity for the Seahawks to 
to be really good this year. And it really is going to come down to the defense, I think, as far as how far we can go. Because if we have a really good defense and it improves quite a bit, even if it's league average or slightly better, when I think it can be, um, we could end up being in that NFC championship game conversation for sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, the NFC is primed to, um, for the Seahawks to run through. They just, the, the defense has to do it. All right. Fun show. Thank you, Keith. I appreciate yeah. the mem- memory row. Um, no, that was, a, that was, that was a lot of fun. Um, you can find Keith on Twitter at Myers NFL. You can find me at NWC Hawk. The show is Seahawks Playbook Podcast on your favorite podcast platform and YouTube channel. Hit that subscribe button, share it, leave a great comment and review. That would be outstanding. We appreciate you guys very much. So until next time, go Hawks. Go Hawks. Seahawks Playbook Podcast listeners, thanks for joining us for another edition of the show. You can find us on Twitter. Bill is at NWC Hawk. Keith is at Myers NFL, and the show is at Hawks Playbook. You can listen and subscribe to the show at SeahawksPlaybook.com. Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.